0: Yeah, uh, I talked to my wife yesterday, and she said, uh, yeah, I went to the doctor, actually, I talked to her Friday night, and she said, I went to the doctor, that's oh, not going to move, and the doctor said, uh, I'm two meters set, uh, dilated, and I said, what? Because when you're four meters, we're going to the doctor, we're going to the hospital, and she's like, relax. It takes a while for it to happen, you know. Uh, so we were uh, we're trying to get our eight and ten-year-old daughters to uh, be a part of the delivery, to be in the delivery room. We did a hospital tour Earlier in the week last week, and uh they both at eight and ten they're like no we're not <laughs> we're not gonna we're not gonna do this so um and I don't blame them so it's good to be here it's good to see all you guys it's uh it's fun to be uh, in this part of the country. It was cool to go into the city yesterday with paul mattson we uh and chris we had we had a good time yesterday uh, love new york city so um I'm just gonna jump into it uh we're gonna I want us to spend some time uh, this morning considering the defining moments in our lives by looking at the defining moment in the life of a guy from the Old Testament that probably none of us have heard of. Maybe a couple of you have heard of this guy. We all have uh, defining moments in our lives. It's just part of living life. Some of the uh, defining moments have a way of uh, altering the trajectory of our lives, sometimes for the better and sometimes not so much for the better. Um... I think of some of the defining moments in uh, in my life and uh, certainly when my children were born you know that moment was those moments were defining moments when uh, when I got married that was a defining moment Um, and we got married 23 years ago which means that um, we got married in college we were very young I'm still you know not that old but I'm old enough to start doing the math when I have this baby that uh, when she graduates from high school, I'm going to be 62 years old. So uh, I'll be going to all her junior high and high school events, and and all the other parents will be like, oh, it's so or Her friends will be like, oh, it's so cool you brought your grandpa to, uh, to, to this event. So that's how it's going to go for me. Um, God definitely has a sense of humor. Um, so it will be a defining moment when this new child, who doesn't have a name, by the way, arrives in a couple of weeks or so. Um, couple of other defining moments stand out for me. My last first kiss was a defining moment, right? So the, the, my first, the first time I kissed my wife was a defining moment. I'll never forget it as long as I live, and uh, I will tell the story as long as I live. Uh, we were going to college in Minnesota, and um, I'm a big baseball fan, so we got tickets with a bunch of friends to go to opening night, Minnesota Twins versus the, you know, At that time, they were the California Angels, and uh, Dave Winfield was playing for the Angels. He played for the Yankees here for a while, and uh, Dave Winfield hit three home runs in that game, which I thought was really cool. Kirby Puckett, and Dave Winfield is a Hall of Famer, and Kirby Puckett, also a Hall of Famer, uh, hit a home run in that game that I caught, Um, and when I say I caught it, it was more like off a rebound, um, because the ball came like this, went over my head, hit a guy directly in the face and bounced back into my hands. And uh, not only did the ball b- bounce back into my hands, but the lenses from the guy's glasses came back and were l- lying on the, and he's all bloody and bleeding, and he goes, hey, buddy, can I have the ball? And I said, no, no, <laughs> you, you, you can't, because this ball has greater purpose. Um, I'm gonna use this ball to uh, impress this girl that I like. And so Kara and I had been dating for a while, and she said, hey, look, there are, there are no sparks. And I'm like, you yeah, know, there, there are some sparks there's a little bit of spark here and so I gave gave the ball to like a seven year old kid sitting behind us and that won me the opportunity to spend the evening with Kara talking after the game and we went back to a restaurant on campus and just talking about our future and things that we like and found out that we have a lot in common and that there actually were sparks and so at the appropriate time I made my move you know it was very cool about it and uh, she was she was okay with it. She met me about three quarters. I went three quarters of the way. She went about a quarter of the way. So she was into it. So I kissed her, and uh, I thought it was great. But she got up right away, walked over to the nearest garbage can, and she vomited in that garbage can. And it was so shocking to me. I didn't even go over and hold her hair. You know, it, it was like... Uh, this is not the way that I drew this first kiss up in my mind. It's not how I played it out when, when, it, uh, when, I, when I went in for the kiss. So um, she only does it like once or twice a year now when I kiss her. So it's, we, we've gotten better at it. She was nervous. She had been in a relationship. She didn't want to be in a relationship again. And now we've been together. That was like 25 years ago. So um, but it's amazing we made it through that. Another defining moment for me uh, is uh, an encounter I had with my my grandfather. When I was 18 years old, I was uh, uh, dealing and using uh, both large amounts of uh, cocaine, selling a lot of it and using a lot of it in Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, my uncle called me while I was living there, and he said, Hey, your grandfather's dying, so if you want to come and visit him, Uh, it's up to you. It's probably the right thing to do, but whatever you want to do, just you'll do your own thing. And so I had enough money at the time. I flew to Chicago and I went to my grandfather's house and I remember walking up to his back door to go in and thinking, what the heck am I doing here? What am I going to say to my grandfather? Because this is a guy that was really invested in making sure that I knew that God loved me and that I went to church and that I knew who Jesus was. And uh, I, I was living the exact opposite life of what he had taught me as a kid. And so I went in, and I, he was kind of the, a shell of the person that I knew when I was growing up. And he couldn't talk very easily, and he couldn't eat anything, so we had milkshakes together. It was the only thing that he could he could eat. And I remember, you know, I'm just not going to say anything. I'm just going to sit here with him, and maybe that's okay. And he, my grandfather then broke the silence with his tears, and he put his hand on on my uh, On my knee and he just began to weep and say Todd I'm I'm so sorry I'm so sorry for your life and I'm thinking he doesn't even know what's going on in my life but he could take one look at me and and he knew I was living on the ragged edge and it it broke his heart And that was a defining moment a significant defining moment for me because uh, my grandfather became like a living expression of Jesus in my life so he was the one dying and he would die six weeks later uh, he was the one in pain, and he looked past his pain. He looked past the fact that he was dying. Uh, and instead of wanting comfort from me, he offered me comfort. Uh, he offered me love. He offered me grace. And uh, I went back to Charleston and told everybody there, hey, I'm, I'm out of this game. And uh, soon after, moved back to Chicago. And two weeks after I moved back to Chicago, everybody in in this uh, high-end cocaine dealing operation was, was arrested. Uh, so a huge defining moment in my life. So today we're going to look at um, the defining moment of a guy from the Old Testament book of 2 Kings called Naaman. Naaman was desperately in need of a defining moment in his life. He was desperate for uh, an encounter with uh, the relentlessly tender love of God, but like so many people that we know, maybe like so many people in this room, Naaman had no idea what he needed. He just knew he needed something. Uh, we'll talk about what, what he needed, but a lot of us feel like this emptiness in our soul. We feel an ache in our soul. We try to fill the emptiness with stuff only to find that it doesn't, doesn't stay with us and the emptiness comes back. We try to soothe the ache with all kinds of different things, but the ache continues to, to linger with us. Um... So Naaman, uh, he was desperate for, for Jesus, just like so many of us who feel that, that ache and that emptiness. And the only insight we get into Naaman's life comes in this passage. Uh, the only other time he's mentioned is by Jesus in uh, Luke 4:27. And Naaman's story is such a great story because it's saturated with the themes of salvation and redemption. And these are the themes that are very close to uh, the heart of God. Redeeming our brokenness. Rescuing us from ourselves and our sin, these are the central themes in the story of, of God. These are things that are close to the heart of God. Rescuing us and redeeming our brokenness are at the core of Jesus' heart. Um, and his heart beats recklessly with relentlessly tender love for every single person in this room. Um, and he loves us as we are right now. Not when we're all cleaned up. Not when we've got it all together. Not when we've gone to church six weeks in a row. Not when we've read our Bible five days in a row. He loves us as we are right now in this moment. Not as we think we should be. Not as anybody else thinks that we should be. He loves us as we are. So 2 Kings 5.1 starts out this way. The king of Aram had high admiration for Naaman, the commander of his army. Because through him, through Naaman, the Lord had given Aram great victories But though Naaman was a mighty warrior, he suffered from leprosy. So Naaman here was the high commander of the powerful army of King Ben-Hadad II of Aram, which is modern-day Syria. And Naaman is this revered warrior. He's a highly decorated general. And he's second only to the king in all of the land. He's like the the prime minister. He's a larger-than-life figure, yet this larger-than-life figure had a serious problem. He's suffering from this awful disease, leprosy. And Naaman was no stranger to big moments in his life. Most of his big moments had come on the battlefield, and most of those big moments were victorious moments for Naaman. But now uh, Naaman is dealing with something he didn't deal with a lot. Uh, He he had never really experienced great failure, but now he's facing um, a, a disease that will take his life. For the first time he's losing and he's losing big and uh, underneath the, the, all the body armor and the decorations of a, of a revered general, Naaman's body was literally rotting away. And what was true of Naaman is true of every one of us. No, none of us, no matter what our personal or professional accomplishments may be, whatever we may have achieved, whatever our perceived status in our life is, none of us is exempt from pain. None of us is exempt from suffering. None of us is exempt from life changing just like that on us, without warning. And that's what happened with Naaman. So leprosy, if you had it, it was an automatic death sentence. Uh, There was no cure for this disease, and there was nothing that anybody could do to fight off the progression of this disease. Uh, Leprosy is just brutal. And so if you had it, it typically started with a, a, a white spot somewhere on your body that would spread. Uh, usually, a lot of times it would start on your extremities and you'd lose feeling in your hand or your fingers or your feet. You could cut yourself and not feel it. Um, and then slowly uh, and systematically, your body would literally rot away. In Leviticus 13, the the Old Testament book of, of law and rules and regulations have... Uh, prescribe what to do for Jewish people if it's suspected that somebody has leprosy. They would go to if they found a spot on their on their body somewhere, they would go to the priest, the priest would check them out, and if it the priest thought they might have leprosy, they would be quarantined for seven days. After seven days they'd come back to the priest and the priest would check them out again. If they were clean, they would just go back into society. If it was determined that they had leprosy, they were cast out of society. Out, so if they were in a city, they were outside the city walls and they had to live by themselves or in a colony of other people who had leprosy. And any people came in their direction, they would have to shout out, uh, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, I have leprosy. And people would know to avoid them because to come in contact with them would make uh, religious Jewish people, uh, religiously and ceremonially unclean. So they had to stay away from these untouchable people. So Naaman was facing desperate circumstances in his life because he has had this disease. He's facing circumstances that he was powerless to do anything about. He was powerless to control this situation in his life. And we think often we have so much control. Some of us would even call ourselves control freaks, but we have so little control over what happens in our lives. And so Naaman is powerless to do anything about this disease. And I wonder how many of us know what it feels like to be facing a situation or facing a circumstance where we just feel absolutely powerless to do anything about it? Maybe that's where some of us are at right now as we sit here. We're going through a, a huge thing that maybe nobody else knows about, but we feel absolutely powerless. We can't see a way out of the situation that we're, we're in. Uh, we're desperate, we're suffering, and we're suffering in silence. Even the people closest to us don't know what's going on but we put on a good facade we put on a good show for other people we act as though everything's all right but it's not so Naaman didn't know it but he needed a supernatural intervention in his life which is exactly what many of us in the room need a supernatural intervention a defining moment a defining encounter with God that alters the trajectory of our lives so some of us, were feeling overwhelmed at work. We've got tension or brokenness in our relationship. We're, uh, we, we're battling illnesses. Some of us are battling addictions. We're dealing with depression and anxiety. We're uncertain about the future. We're living in the question, which is a difficult place to be. And if none of those describe you, you, know, you can fill in your own, your own blank. But it's amazing how much you and I have in, uh, in common with a Syrian general who lived thousands and thousands of years ago and suffered from leprosy. And the reality of Naaman's life is that he'd been facing a death sentence long before he presented symptoms of leprosy. So Naaman, uh, as a Syrian, he didn't know the God of Israel. He didn't know the, the living God, the one that we worship on Sunday mornings. So it wasn't just Naaman's body that was rotting away, it was his soul as well that was dying a slow and agonizing death. So, Naaman's illness then leads him to a spiritual experience. It leads him to a place that he never would have had or never would have gone to, never would have discovered if not for his illness, if not for his leprosy. And in the same way, in our lives, our pain often leads us to profound uh, spiritual experiences with God. Uh, we visit places with, with Jesus that we never would have visited if not for the pain that we've experienced, if not for the suffering. That we've gone through. In fact, our pain often drives us to God, doesn't it? Our our suffering often drives us to God in search of help. So 2 Kings 5.1 tells us that it was God that gave Naaman great victories. Even though Naaman was uh, an Aramean, he was a Syrian, he wasn't one of God's people, but God gave Naaman great victories. God gave those victories to Naaman to bring him to this point in his life so that God could um, give, mo- uh, give Naaman a defining moment in his life to a point where God could intervene and heal Naaman's body and more importantly, to the place where God could rescue uh, Naaman's soul from the same profound emptiness and that same lingering ache that so many of us feel in our soul. Uh, and we feel that apart from a relationship with Jesus. And if, we've been, if we're followers of Jesus, we can even begin to feel that If it's been a long time, there's been a lot of time and distance between uh, our lives and Jesus. If it's been a while since we've had any real intimate, close contact with Jesus, our soul begins to to feel the effects. So it's possible that God's been working through the pain, that God's been working through the uncertainty in our lives to get us to this place, into this room uh, this morning, so that he might bring us to the defining moment that we desperately need. Maybe it's to bring us to that first step towards that defining moment that we so desperately need in our lives. Our soul may be in the same condition as Naaman's soul. It may be on life support. Even if we're a follower of Jesus, uh, our faith and as a result, our soul may be on life support as we sit here because again, it's been such a long time since we've been in real contact and close proximity to Jesus. And yet we do the same thing that you know we always do. We project an image to everybody else that we're fine. Things in our lives are great. God is good, You know we might say, but things are not fine. And we don't know how God is because it's been such a long time since we've interacted with him. But here's a, the great thing. Here's the good news. In this moment, God offers each of us the very thing he's about to offer Naaman. He offers healing where we need it. He offers hope, purpose in life. He offers Redemption, uh, especially from the failures and regrets and the self recriminations that we drag around with us in our shame uh, like huge anchors attached to a massive chain that are, that's just wrapped around our our bodies you know we just drag that thing around us around with us wherever we go um, so now verse two says group uh, now groups of uh Aramean raiders had invaded the land of Israel, and among their captives was a young girl who had been given to Naaman's wife as a maid. One day the girl said to her mistress, I wish my master would go to see the prophet in Samaria. He would heal him of his leprosy. So Naaman told the king, Ben Hadad II, what the young girl from Israel had said. Go and visit the prophet, the king told him. I'll send a letter of introduction for you to carry to the king of Israel. So Naaman started out taking as gifts. 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. He was going to pay a lot for his healing, and he was going to be dressed really well when he got there. So the letter to the king of Israel said, With this letter, I present my servant Naaman. I want you to heal him of his leprosy. It was... uh, it was. It would be a huge loss for King Ben-Hadad II to, if Naaman would, were to die from leprosy. So they both are going to take whatever crazy opportunity there might be out there for Naaman to find healing. And so Naaman's people had an uneasy peace with Israel. Naaman would have been considered an enemy to Israel, especially those who lived along the northern border because these bandits would... Uh, jump over the border. They would steal livestock. They would steal people's possessions. They would steal people. Then they would bring them back to their country and sell them, and they would sell the people into servanthood or or slavery. Uh, so a young girl had been taken captive in this very way, and she ended up in Naaman's household. And apparently, Naaman and his wife were good people. They treated this girl really well, and it's obvious that she grew to love both of them because she cared for Naaman. She wanted him to be healed of his leprosy. So she told Naaman's wife about Elisha, the prophet, in Samaria, and Mrs. Naaman told her husband. And uh, I would have thought if I was Naaman, this sounds like a crazy idea. I'm not even sure it's worth it. But then I would have given it a second thought. Might as well try because I'm going to die anyway, so I might as well give this a shot. So he goes, um... So Naaman here is, uh, is suffering, but he, he takes the long shot because the prophet in Israel is his, his only hope. So there he is heading to Israel with the king's letter in his hand. 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold to pay for his cure. Now, uh, I've gotten different numbers from different people on how much 750 pounds of silver and 150 pounds of gold would be today. But it's millions of dollars. So Naaman goes to the king, first of all, because that's where he was sent, and that's the person that you, you want to go to the top to get things done. So Naaman goes to King Joram, who, by the way, was one of the worst kings ever to sit on the throne in Israel. And Joram doesn't know what to do with this letter, so he freaks out a bit. Uh, when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes in dismay and said, This man sends me a leper to heal? Am I God that I can give life and take it away? I can see that he's just trying to pick a fight with me. So the king just thinks that, you know, this is craziness on Ben-Hadad II's part, uh, in his part. He just wants to, he's going to invade Israel. And so the test is, heal this guy of leprosy. If you can't do it, we're just coming in and uh, we're going to take over. That's what the king thought. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard about the king's reaction, he shook his head. It doesn't say that, but I'm sure he shook his head. And he sent this message to him. Why are you so upset? Send Naaman to me and he will learn that there is a true prophet here in Israel. King Joram, you may not know that, but Naaman's going to know it. So God uh, was aware of Naaman's condition. He brought Naaman to this point in his life to meet his deepest needs. God is also aware of your condition. He's aware of my condition. Psalm 37.23 says that uh, God delights himself in the details of our lives. So God delights himself, himself in the detail of, details of your life as though you were the only person in the world. He cares that much about the details that even your family members don't want you to tell them about. God cares about that, that stuff in your life. He cares that deeply about you. And he longs to meet our deepest needs. No matter who we are, no matter what we've done, No matter what we've neglected to do in this moment jesus pursues each one of us with mercy with an opportunity for redemption with love with forgiveness and with purpose uh, an opportunity for a life with great purpose and just let that idea that the relentlessly tender love of jesus is pursuing you in this moment just let that linger in you within you for just a, a, a second He pursues you with this relentlessly tender love that you don't and I don't have to earn. He he just wants to give it to us if we'll receive it. So Naaman, verse 9, with his horses and chariots. Naaman went with his horses and chariots and waited at the door of Elisha's house. But Elisha sent a messenger out to him with this message. Go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored and you will be healed of leprosy. Awesome, right? This is the answer that Naaman had come to Samaria, to Israel, to uh, to get. Right? So he, all he has to do is go down to the Jordan River, wash in the river seven times, and then he can go home and he's, he's good. Um, But not so much. This didn't work out very well for Naaman. It's not the way that he wanted things to go down. The next verse says, But Naaman became angry and stalked away. Here's your prescription for healing. Nope, I don't want it, you know, and just goes away in a huff. Uh, I'd rather die. So he says, Naaman says, I thought he would surely, talking about Elisha, I thought he would surely come out to meet me, he said. I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy and call on the name of the Lord his God and heal me. Aren't the Abana River and the Farpar River of Damascus better than all the rivers in Israel put together? Why shouldn't I wash in them and be healed? So Naaman turned and went away in a rage, which if it wasn't like life and death, it'd be hilarious that he did this. So Naaman is offered exactly what he went to Israel to receive, healing. So the, the miracles of physical healing and the, the miracle of spiritual healing are right there in front of Naaman for him to grasp onto and he just won't do it. He rejects Elisha's offer because Elisha's offer didn't come on the terms that Naaman expected them to come on. They, uh, the way that Elisha worked was not the way that Naaman expected him to work. And so Naaman's pride now gets in the way because he's not being treated the way that a general, somebody of his status and stature should be treated. So he goes away in a rage because of his pride. Man, our pride has a way of derailing us every time. And it almost derailed Naaman's entire life here. And it's tragic when we miss the very thing we need from Jesus because it doesn't come on our terms. Because it doesn't come the way that we expect it to come. It doesn't come the way that we want it to come, and so we reject it. It's tragic when we miss out because of that. So Naaman leaves Elijah's house in a rage, fully intent on taking his leprosy-ravaged body back back to Aram where he's just going to die. He may have been dying from some devastating disease, but Naaman's pride is fully alive, very much alive and very well. So Naaman's angry that Elijah hadn't come out to greet him personally. But Elijah couldn't have, even though the king came out to greet him King shouldn't have even done that. Elisha didn't come out to greet Naaman because Jewish law prevented him from going to uh, be in the presence of Naaman. So remember the lepers, used to they'd have to go out and, and uh, say, I'm unclean, I'm unclean. So for the prophet to go and be in the presence of a leper, it would have made Elisha spiritually and religiously unclean, and he wouldn't have been able to come through and, and heal Naaman the way that God used him to heal Naaman so Naaman doesn't understand that because he's from a a different culture so there's a cultural confusion here Uh, so you got to love Naaman's response it's essentially doesn't he know who I am you know how could he treat somebody like me this way I wanted him to come out and wave his magic wand essentially over my leprosy and and make me better then I would pay him the 750 pounds of silver and the 150 pounds of gold and we'd be out of here Naaman viewed this as a business transaction, but this was not going to be a business transaction. It was going to be a transformation. It's going to be a transformation of Naaman's body and Naaman's soul. And this transformation could only be done on God's terms. And God's terms are always the best terms. They're not necessarily the terms that we hope for. They're not necessarily the terms that we pray for. They're not the terms that we demand at times, but they're always the best terms. So Naaman wanted a healing ceremony. He didn't want a mud bath in a river that was inferior to the rivers in his own country. He's a revered general. He's a warrior. He doesn't expect to have to jump through hoops, like dipping in a river seven times in order to be healed of his leprosy. Apparently, Naaman would rather die than surrender his expectations and humble himself. Sometimes you and I would rather continue suffering than to let go of our expectations and humble ourselves before God. And we can see ourselves in Naaman's reactive behavior a little bit, can't we? We often expect things to be done our way on our terms. We cry out for God to help us and we say, God, if you help us or if you help me, I I promise God. I know I haven't done it the last few times we had this negotiation, but I promise I will do this, this, and this for you. And God doesn't need us to do this, this, and this for him. God just needs us. God's desire is not for our behavior to be awesome. God's desire is for us to be in relationship with him. He loves us. He wants our lives, not our, you know, good works based on negotiation. So we get something from him. But we often do that with God. We try to make a deal. God's terms are always so much better than our terms. And God allows us to wait. And he asks us to surrender to his way, to his Uh, to his will and until we do then life becomes a series of rinse and repeat experiences until we realize I don't want to do this anymore Uh, God's the only one that can help me God's the only one that can fill the emptiness in my soul God's the only one who can soothe the ache in my soul so I'm going to go and I'm going to surrender to God fortunately that's what Naaman's entourage encourages Naaman to do here they show some courage Verse 13, but his officers tried to reason with him and said, Sir, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? So you should certainly obey him when he simply says, go and wash and be cured. So Naaman went down to the Jordan River, let his guys, his guys talked him into it, and dipped himself seven times as the man of God had instructed, and his flesh became as healthy as a young child's, and he was healed. So they've convinced Naaman that he's behaving like a drama queen and a bit of a fool, and that he's got nothing to lose and everything to gain by going down to the river and just trying out what Elisha had prescribed for him. So can you be, imagine being Naaman as you enter into that river? You go in once, you come out, you still have leprosy. Twice, three times, five times, you come out, you still look the same. You go in the sixth time, you come out, you're looking at your guys, and you're, now you're afraid, your heart's beating fast, and you're thinking, this may not work. Then you go in the seventh time and you come out and your skin is restored. There's no sign of leprosy. There's, there are no scars. In fact, the Bible says that his skin was restored to its youthful state. So he's got the, the skin of a, of a baby here, as he, essentially, as he comes back out. So uh, Naaman's healing, by the way, had nothing to do with the Jordan River. We know that. It had everything to do with God's outrageous mercy in Naaman's life. It had had to do with Naaman's willingness finally to abandon his pride and do what Elijah had told him to do, and it worked out pretty good, right? So, verse fifteen. Then Naaman and his entire party went back to find the man of God. They stood before him, and Naaman said, "I know at last that there is no god in all the world except Israel." So Naaman had been transformed, body and soul and he worships God he puts his faith in God and he knows that this is the one and true living God that has healed him but Naaman doesn't yet understand the profound grace that's healed him Naaman still wants to pay Elisha uh, for the healing because he feels indebted to him he feels like we still have to do this this transaction I have to earn or pay for this healing that saved my life but that's not how it works with God his mercy his the good things that God offers us he offers us freely and they're offered to anybody who will receive it. Yet so many Christians have a transactional relationship with God. You know, we do things for God. And when we do things for God, God loves us and he rewards us. And when, we're, when we screw things up, when we sin, when we fail, then God gets angry with us. And he gets angry with us pretty easily because he probably didn't like us that much in the first place to begin with. And so we try harder to gain God's favor by doing more stuff for him. And it's tragic because it misses the profound grace of God entirely. It misses how God deals with us entirely. Verse 16, But Elisha replied, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept any gifts. And though Naaman urged him to take the gifts, Elijah refused. If Elijah had accepted any of Naaman's gifts, it would have totally obliterated the extraordinary grace that God had lavished on Naaman's life. And the same is true with us. It's not about what we do or have done for God. It's allowing God to uh, capture us with his relentlessly tender love that pursues us. God wanted to heal Naaman. He wanted to provide this defining moment in his life. He wanted to heal Naaman's leprosy. He wanted to heal Naaman's soul. And God wants to do the same thing for us. Whatever it is that, that we need, God wants to meet that need. So in verse 19, Elisha says to Naaman, go in peace. And Naaman went back to Aram with a peace that he had never experienced in his life because he had come face to face with the living God who had impacted his body by healing him and had changed uh, the condition of his soul. So I wonder how many of us need that type of healing in some area where where we're experiencing brokenness. I wonder how many of us need... Desperately to experience the peace that Naaman had when he left um, after his encounter with God's mercy. How many of us are suffering? How many of us are suffering in silence as we sit here this morning? How many of us are experiencing emotional pain? How many of us are acutely aware of the different areas in our life where we're broken? How many of us are facing uncertainty and anxious and afraid about the future, uncertain about how we're going to get from here to wherever it is that we need to go? We can't see the way. We can't see the way forward. And it seems as though God is silent for a lot of us, that He's unaware, that He's unaffected by our lives, that He's even unconcerned with our circumstances. But the reality is, God has not forgotten us, God is not unaware. And he's certainly not unaffected by our circumstances. He cares about the details. He concerns himself. He delights, depending on what version you, really, you read. He delights himself in the details of our life. He's not left us. He's not forgotten us. He's not abandoned us. He's more aware of our pain and our suffering and our circumstances than even we are. So I want to leave you with this quote from uh, somebody who had, had a great impact on, on my spiritual life. Uh, died a few years ago, um, Brendan Manning. Brendan Manning says, do you really believe that Jesus Christ loves you? Not the person next to you, not the church, not the world, but that he loves you beyond worthiness and unworthiness, beyond fidelity and infidelity, that he loves you in the morning sun and in the evening rain without caution, regret, boundary, or limit. No matter what's gone down, he can't stop loving you. Do you know that to be true about God? Is that uh, true about your relationship with Jesus? That no matter what's gone down, He can't stop loving you, and will never stop pursuing you. Discovering that love, surrendering to the relentless pursuit of Jesus—that may be where our defining—that may be our defining moment. But it certainly may be where our defining moment begins. Let me pray. God, may we be um, people who are. Uh, willing to be honest with ourselves and with you about what's true in our lives these days, about where we're at. Um, May we be people who are willing to either uh, surrender ourselves fully or begin to surrender ourselves fully, or even to say, God, I don't really want to surrender myself fully, but I know that I need to, so help me to get to that place so that we can experience Uh, the defining moment that you have for us, the moment where we truly, or all over again, um, come to the place where we recognize and experience fully your relentlessly tender love, your grace, your mercy, and your peace. Uh, The love that you have for us is unlike any other love we've ever experienced, and your peace is so deep and so profound, it can't even be explained. May we be people who... um, experience that love and that peace and then may we be people who who share the those things with with the people around us Um, god give us the uh, and even i'm praying about myself here give us the courage to be willing to surrender to you or give us the courage to be willing to be willing to surrender to you And then we'll see what you do with us, God, on the other side. Uh, We trust that you'll do what we need. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.